we would not take this time for granted, uh, but we would take it uh, personally, uh, very personally. I pray that you'd speak through Michael, you'd speak through your word, uh, that our hearts would be blessed, they'd be drawn closer to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Is anybody else besides me looking forward to when faith becomes sight? Is that just me? Anybody else interested in that in here this morning? You're pointing at something, Bo. Oh, no, he's not. Someone want to get that back light? Let's, uh, we can. Everybody can see then. We're still experimenting. I feel like I'm really loud this morning. Is that, am I normal? Is it just me? Is the monitor? You want to to turn that down, Austin, that monitor? I don't know if it, anyway, it sounds like I'm echoing up here. And there's people shaking their head, yes. Um, Good morning. It is, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be with you and it's good to, to see each and every one of you this morning. A uh, couple of uh, reminders. When we're finished with this hour, there is uh, elementary and preschool across the hall. There's an adult class that meets in this front classroom there. And then after second hour this morning, uh, a lot of you, I hear stories all the time of I wish we could or there's this need here. If there's something that is in your mind, in your heart, a need in your community where you live, uh, after second hour, not after this, but after the second hour Sunday school classes. Um, you want to meet with Bo in the front. Is that still going on? Okay, you're looking at me like, no. Meet with Bo in that front room up here. And uh, we'd like to see if we as a church can help out if there are any needs in your community. If you've got something that's pressing on your heart or mind, um, you can meet with him and do that. I think those are all... Oh, there is corn up in the front, and also some tomatoes. There's fresh veggies for you to take take what you need and uh, enjoy those from gardens from our church members. You can have those. First come, first serve. No fighting over any of that. We are in the middle of a series on Colossians. And uh, this morning we are sort of going to be in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, but not really. Uh, if you need an outline, Bo's got a bulletin. He'll be happy to give you one if you'll raise your hand. Um, we have been, if you picture a, a drive maybe over the, the Terrahilla Skyway, if you with that, or over the Blue Ridge Parkway, we have been taking a tour of some wonderful sights over the last many weeks. And time and time again, we stop and we look over the edge, and what we see is the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. And what we see Paul doing is saying, do not get outside of that box. You've entitled the series, Don't Think Outside the Box. The box is the gospel. Whenever you leave that box, you find yourself in trouble. Paul spends almost all of chapter 2 warning the people about false deception and other world philosophies. Don't do it. Don't do it. The gospel, the grace of God and truth is what we have to keep our eyes focused upon. And we come to chapter 3 and Paul then shifts gears a little bit and says these two ifs. 
if you've died with Christ and if you've been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you identify with Christ because of your salvation, that's what he's talking about, if you've come to know our Lord and Savior, then these are the necessary, these are the practical, these, this is what's going to happen. This is what you should do. You should put off the old man and put on the new. You should get rid of those things that are focused on yourself, ultimately, we talked about a couple weeks ago. And you should put on, you should embrace, you should begin practicing those habits that are focused on someone else. And he says that's characterized by love. And we define love as that which is sacrificial towards someone else for God's glory and, and for their good. That's a kind of a biblical definition of love. And then, unfortunately, what happens in my Bible, and probably in your Bible as well, after verse 17, there's a heading. Maybe some white space. And someone was nice enough to tell us, oh, Paul is now shifting gears and going to talk about someone, something else. The problem is I don't think Paul is shifting gears to talk about something else. A lot of times those nice headings are helpful and they're familiar. Help us know where we are, what's going on, what the next story is going to be. I think it's a disservice here because there's nothing in the text. There's no paragraph break. There's no transition word. There's nothing in the text that tells us that Paul has changed course, that he's now talking about something else. When Paul begins to talk about the marriage relationship, when Paul begins to talk about the parent relationship, the child relationship, he's not changing gears. What he's doing is saying, okay, we've talked about the gospel and how wonderful it is. We've talked about how if you've come to embrace that, here's what your life should now look like. Let me give you an extremely practical example of that. He's still talking about the same thing. Putting off the old man and putting on the new man applies just as much to your marriage, just as much to you as parents, just as much to you as kids, as it does anything else in our life. And maybe more so because those are the foundational relationships of society. He's not changing gears. He's pressing ahead with the truth of God and how it applies to what's basic in our lives. There are some of you here who may be single or not yet married and you go, is this going to even apply to me? Yes, very much so. It applies to you. Number one, you know someone who is married. And so as a member of the body of Christ, hopefully this in the next two or three weeks will give you ammunition of how you can pray for people you know who are married. But second, and maybe more importantly, as you think about whether or not marriage is for you or not, or whether that's something that you're interested in, or you are, but you look around and you go, oh, this world's a mess, do I even want to bother with that? We're going to look at the truth of the, the wonder of what marriage is and what the world holds up as an incorrect definition of that. So that's where we're going to begin going this morning. We're not really going to get to 18 and 19 this morning because you read 18 and 19 and those, those characteristics of husbands and wives 
And if you put that over the definition that the world gives of marriage, you will be at best confused, at most disgusted. Because what Paul says about husbands and wives doesn't really mesh with what the world says marriage is. I want to start there this morning. I want to start with what the world says that marriage is. In 1960, 70% of adults, and, and this survey actually included adults as anyone that was 16 and over. In 1960, 70% of adults were married. Today, it's about 50%. Whether that's due to divorce or whether that's due to just, I'm choosing not to get married or waiting longer, the percentage of, a, of the adult population that's actively married is about half. In 1960, there was almost no one who chose to live together before they got married. Today, that number is about 60% of people choose to live together before they get married. Uh, I want to give you some definitions that, that some people who've done some research, uh, who've spent a lot of time thinking about marriage, how they say the culture defines what marriage is. And then we're going to look at what God says marriage is and kind of compare and contrast those. Uh, John White did a lot of research looking at just demographics. And his conclusion from that was that people, especially young people today in their 20s, view marriage as a terminal contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Terminal contract meaning his definition was something that I can end whenever I choose to. A terminal contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Marriage is all about me, and when I'm tired of it, I can end it. Adam Sternberg did a lot of oral interviews of people in their 20s and 30s. And his summary statement of all those interviews was, if marriage is truly compatible, you don't have to change. That was what he was hearing from 20-somethings and 30-somethings. If I find the person that's compatible with me, I won't have to change. They'll accept me for who I am, always. For those of you that have been married for longer than, say, two days, do you change in marriage? Do we? Do we change over time? Yeah, I was a different person the week after I got married than I was the week before. And I'm a much different person than I was almost 18 years ago. We change. We, we should never think that we shouldn't have to. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas, I think that's how you pronounce it. He's actually an ethicist at, uh, at Duke University here in North Carolina. Um, through interviews and through research he's done, he says uh, a modern-day definition of marriage is an institution of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. He disagrees with that, but that's his statement of what marriage is today in most people's minds. Necessary for us to become whole and happy. Which means, of course, that marriage in people's minds, in a sense, or their spouse, has become an idol. Your job, husband or wife, is to make me whole and happy. It should be God's job, we think. 
finally, uh, Tim Keller says, uh, marriage is a relationship with our one true soulmate where everything wrong with us will be healed. Again, he disagrees with that, but through his observations, he pastors a church in New York that is about 70% single. And so the people that he interacts with on a daily basis are wrestling with that issue of marriage. And he says that's what at least the New York singles culture looks at marriage and says, if I find the right one, they'll make me better. And then finally, Chris Rock, the comedian, says, you have two choices in life. Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? He doesn't paint a very good picture of what marriage is. I would disagree with that. Do you want to be married and happy and in, in, in a, a joyful and nourishing relationship? But we'll, we'll get to that. We're going to look at a biblical definition of marriage here in just a little bit. Uh, two ideas I want, to, I want to express. This is a little different than normal. Normally we look at a long passage and I go through it. We talk about it kind of verse by verse and line by line. And so I'm really out of my comfort zone this morning. We're going to bounce around a little bit. So just bear with me and be patient and we'll try to have fun together. Um, that break after verse 17... Uh, we also see that in Ephesians. I want to turn back to Ephesians for just a moment because I want, to, I want to show you that Paul's doing the exact same thing in both Ephesians and Colossians. He introduces the subject of marriage in the same way but using different words, using different terms, but he's talking about the same thing. So Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to begin reading uh, in verse 15. And read through 21, then we'll talk about that, and then we're going to jump back to Colossians. He says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to God, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. He says, be filled with the Spirit. It's really the same thing that Paul is saying when he says, if you've died and if you've been raised up. He's talking to believers. And what he's saying is, I want you to be controlled by God, not controlled by the things of the world. He gives an example of wine. Don't be drunk. Don't let that control you. Let the Spirit control you. And if the Spirit does control you, then there are some things that are going to happen. You're going to have this, this inner joy that is going to be contagious. You're going to speak to one another in psalms, in hymns, making melody with your heart to God. There's this, as Jesus talked about to the woman at the well, that eternal life that kind of bubbles up out of you and, and spills over into the person next to you. That's one of the signs that you're filled with the Spirit is this inner joy. The next thing is, he says, be thankful to God. A sign of being filled with the Spirit is thankfulness to the one who made it all possible. And then finally, the, the third characteristic of being filled with the Spirit that Paul gives there is, be subject to one another. 
And notice that, that all of those characteristics are other-focused. I'm, I'm not just basking in my own salvation and my pool, pool is full and I'm just sitting there bubbling, but I'm overflowing. I'm speaking to one another. The joy in my heart is overflowing. I am thankful to God. I'm not just thankful to myself that I figured it all out. And I'm in subjection to my other brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, I'm putting them above myself. It's a very Christ-like thing to do, isn't it? Did He not do that for us? Did He not choose to put Himself in His deity, His majesty, His glory, chose to veil that, come to earth and, and die? So Paul is saying, before he gets to the marriage relationship, there's that white space in my Bible after 21, marriage like Christ in the church. Someone's told me what's coming up. That was nice of them. But Paul hasn't changed gears here. He's fixing to give a very practical example of what being filled with the Spirit and what being subjected to each other looks like, both for husbands and for wives. So you've got to come back next week and the week after to get the specifics. I just want to lay the foundation because if we look at those definitions, that marriage is all about making me happy, that marriage is all about my fulfillment, that marriage is all about finding the person that's going to make me whole and happy, what Paul is fixing to say in Ephesians and what he's fixing to say in Colossians is not going to make a lick of sense to you or to me. Husbands and wives will both be frustrated by what Paul says if I lay that over the definition of marriage that our culture says is accurate. Being, being a Christian, being filled with the Spirit, means my life is other-focused. He says the same thing in Colossians. If you identify with Christ in His death, and resurrection, you will put off, we talked about that two weeks ago, those things that are self-focused, those things that gratify my flesh, gratify my desires. It's all about me. You will put those to death, Paul says. You will kill those. You will put them off. You will lay them aside. And what you will put on are those things that turn towards those around you. Ultimately, remember we said, love is what covers all of those. Compassion and kindness and gentleness, forbearance. Love is, is the characteristic that when that's hard, if I'm thinking, hey, what does love look like? When I don't want to be compassionate, but love says, I'm willing to sacrifice myself for God's glory and your good, then I can begin to think what compassion looks like in your life. If I don't want to be kind, if, if love is over that, and I'm thinking, what does it look like to sacrifice for God's glory and your good? Then I can begin to think, okay, what does kindness look like? My eyes are off myself and they're on you. And you become more important than my wants, my needs, my urges, my desires. And in both Ephesians and Colossians, then Paul transitions to the basic relationship and foundation, which is marriage. But if we don't remember, if we look at that white space and that little, those little extra words that someone wrote in our Bibles and we say, okay, now Paul's switching gears. If we forget what came before, 
verse 18 and 19 won't make sense. I can't say that enough. This is in the context of you putting off yourself and putting on Christ. This is in the context of you forgetting about what is most important for you and thinking about what's most important for someone else. And so the question is, why? Because that is God's character. He delights in other-focused activity. You read through the Gospel of John carefully, and in several places what you see is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each trying to not outdo each other for glory, but each one trying to give the other one glory. The Son wants to give the Father glory. The Father wants to give the Son glory. The Spirit wants to give the Son glory. Over and over in the Gospel of John, He brings that point out that the Godhead, the Trinity, that is, they're all fully God. They all have the rights and the the privileges of being God, and yet no one seems to be taking advantage of that. They're interested in the other person of the Trinity getting glory. It's His character to be other-focused. We read in Philippians 2 that Jesus, who was in the form of God, says, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to. He didn't assert His rights. I'm God, by golly. I can do whatever I want to. I don't have to go to the cross for you measly, ungrateful, unthankful people. He didn't do that. He could have. You read through the Gospels, there's lots of ungrateful and unthankful and... ungodly people, and yet He chose to go to the cross. He put aside His deity, chose to be a servant for our sakes. And then Paul goes on in Philippians and says that God, because of that action, God, the Father, will exalt Him so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus chose to humble Himself. The Father is going to exalt Him, going to give Him glory. And then Paul finishes. So what's the result of that? For the glory of God the Father. As they give up their glory, they receive it back. As they give it up, they get it back. As they give it up, they they get it back. Over and over again, Godhead seeks to glorify one another and it just leads to more glory and more glory and more glory. He is, as a God, other-focused. And if we are His children and filled with His Spirit, then we necessarily should be other-focused as well. The second thing that we need to to keep in mind is that God is a covenant-keeping God. From Abraham... Isaac to Jacob. If you've been here long enough, you know we've talked in detail about how the fact that God, despite His people's stupidity and silliness and selfishness, He keeps His promises. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David to us, God keeps His promises. His character is, if I make a promise, I keep it. 
So therefore, if we are His people, if we make a promise, if we enter into a covenant relationship, the expectation is that we will keep it. The world's expectation is, well, you only have to keep it as long as benefits me. I'll only keep my promise as long as you do your part. I'll only keep my promise as long as I'm getting something out of it or as long as my feelings hold out. As long as you're meeting my needs. As long as I don't have to sacrifice too much because really you shouldn't ask too much of me. That's what the world says a covenant or a promise is. It's really conditional on how I feel what's going on, what you're doing for me. But Paul in Ephesians says that the marriage relationship is like the relationship of Christ and the church, which is a covenant relationship, which is what we will celebrate in just a moment here this morning. The covenant relationship where God said, I'm going to send my son to die for you and provide grace. And when you come and you change allegiance and you accept that grace, then I will come and I will indwell you with my spirit and one day I will come for you. And it's a promise we can trust because we read over and over and over and over again in this book that God keeps His promises. And so if we're His people... Number one, we rejoice in that. And we're going to do that in just a moment together. Rejoice in God's goodness. Celebrate together His faithfulness as we partake of the bread and the fruit of the vine. But it also is the second foundation, so to speak, of what that marriage relationship looks like. If I don't believe it's a covenant that's supposed to last, if I think it's a terminal contract, then what we talk about the next two weeks aren't going to make any difference. We enter into marriage where that D word, divorce, should never even cross our minds. Well, I'm committed unless... It should never be thrown out as a threat. It should never be thrown out as something that you, you dangle in front of your spouse to get them to do what you want to do. For a Christian, someone who's still with the Spirit, it's not an option. We've entered into a covenant and we say, I promise, till death do us part. That's the foundation of marriage. And I want to give you a, another definition to put up against those others that, that the world says. Again, Tim Keller gives this definition of, of what marriage is. It's a union between a man and a woman which provides mutual fulfillment. See, he's not against necessarily me getting something out of the marriage. But that mutual fulfillment comes through mutual sacrifice. It's the same thing that happens when the father chooses to give the son glory, the father gets it. When the son chooses to sacrifice his life, he gets glory and fulfillment because his love, his desire is for his church. And when he gave his life for his church, what he got was he got not only his life back, but he got the church. 
He got that relationship. He got reconciliation. Right? We, re we read in, in Colossians 1 that it was the Father's pleasure to reconcile the world to Himself through the blood of the cross. You know what makes God happy? It made the Father happy to put His Son to death so that we could be reconciled. Sacrifice gave Him pleasure because He knew it had an end. And that's the way we need to begin to think about marriage. I will only be satisfied and fulfilled when I'm willing to give it all away for my spouse. And over the next two weeks, we'll look in detail of what that looks like for husbands and for wives because how that happens is different because we are different as men and women. But only if you hang in, but I'm going to anyway. It's the way it works. But now what I want to do is I want us to, to bask in, to dwell in the goodness and the grace of God. Because we remember that the night before he was arrested, or the night of his arrest, he gathered his disciples together, even though he knew they were all going to scatter. And he, he told them that when he served them the bread and the fruit of the vine, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. This is a new covenant that I'm making with you. A new promise. That when you partake of this, when you change your allegiance, when you choose to say, no, the world is not the right way, you're the right way, God. then this is a reminder of grace every day for you. And so we gather as a church, as a body, to celebrate that, to be a reminder, so that when we go out into the world and we do something stupid, and we're not other-focused, that God says, I still love you, I'm committed to you, would you get back up, and would you put one foot in front of the other? And so as, as a body, we, as you know, we're all in here, young and old. And parents, we trust that, that you know where your child is in regards to their faith, um, and that you monitor them as we pass out the bread and the fruit of the vine. But we will partake together. Let me pray for us. And then we will pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for today. Father, we rejoice in your goodness and your grace. And as you said, this is my body, take, eat. What you were telling them was that you were fixing to give of yourself. And so, Jesus, we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for allowing your son to do that for us. So God, as we partake, I pray your spirit would remind us of the sacrifice you made. And then it would strengthen us to be willing to make those same sacrifices for one another. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.